Yo, what is going on, ladies and gentlemen? I am your host, Armand Lee, welcoming you all to a brand new week, a brand new episode of the Quarterly Report Podcast, episode 89. There may be some discrepancy on which actual episode it is, but don't worry. We're going to fix things before the 100th episode. Again, like I said, this is the second episode of 2019, and man, we're going to continue all the great momentum. We've got a really amazing show. My guy, friend of the program, Troy Halliburton, is returning to discuss all things. We're breaking down R. Kelly, All-Star Games, uh, analytics in the NBA, all fantastic topics, all things that we're going to wrap up with my guy, Troy. You're not going to want to miss that interview. Also, what the hell is Floyd Mayweather doing? And what his quote-unquote fight on New Year's Day means for 2019 for one of the most infamous fighters of this generation. All that and so much more. But first, our number one topic is first quarter. I can in good conscience put a guy who uh, took the equivalent of 6% of the season and flushed it down the toilet. When the when the uh, Steelers were in a playoff implication game, and so Mike, I ended up voting for Michael Thomas, and I took Antonio Brown off my All Pro ballot. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very very serious about these votes, and they mean a lot to me. But if a guy takes six percent of his season and purposely flushes it down the toilet, I I, can, I cannot. I, I can't vote for him for anything. Man, sit your ass down. Man, Peter King, if you don't sit your monkey ass down, Slim, y'all have no idea, no idea how infuriating that is to me, someone who does not even play sports. So imagine how that feels, not just to Antonio Brown, but to all of these guys, all of them. Yo, we're going to dissect this entire topic because there's so much to address, but we are going to start with Peter King. And make no mistake, this isn't me, you know, trying to clout chase and take personal shots at Peter King. No, 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 no. Peter King is a legend. Obviously, we all know him, respect what he does and what he has done in terms of covering the NFL. All that being said, all the pleasantries aside, this is insane. He made it a big point to say, Oh, I can't vote for a guy who would take the equivalent of 6% of yada, yada, yada. I don't know. Give me the guy who gives me 94% of one of the best seasons statistically from the wide receiver position that we have seen in recent history. If you want to say that Michael Thomas and DeAndre Hopkins are better wide receivers than Antonio Brown, boom or had better seasons than Antonio Brown, I I think you're wrong, right? But okay, say that. Say, you know what? All three of these guys, first off, Tyreek Hill, I'm sorry, right? Tyreek Hill is amazing. Uh, he's a kind of a jack-of-all-trades guy, right? So we're going to put him to the side for a quick second. If you wanted to tell me DeAndre Hopkins and uh, Michael Thomas just on merits, we're all on the same level as Antonio Brown. And you were like, you know what? I had to pick and choose last second. This was the thing. This this was the tiebreaker for me. Okay. I would disagree, but reasonable people can agree on that method. What Peter King said is he had already turned in on his votes. 
He had already done the math. And in his head, Antonio Brown was deserving of, okay, deserving of AP All-Pro First Team Honors, right? We, we get that. He went into after the season. Like, he couldn't have done it, you know, before the season ended. He did it after the game. A game Antonio Brown didn't play. So that whole 6% of the season, he didn't play the game, and yet you still deemed him worthy enough for AP honors. It's not until you find out what, why he missed the game, and then all of a sudden you do a 180. That's trash, man. That is so trash. And this is not the first time, you know, we have members of the media use their power in this way. It happens every year in the Hall of Fame voting. Y'all, if you listen to this show for any significant amount of time, number one, I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for rocking with me. But number two, you remember how upset I was when the whole T.O. Hall of Fame voting thing came out two years ago. You know? Like, T.O. should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. But so many voters kind of get off on this idea, we're going to hold this against you. You know, I don't like how you conducted interviews i don't like how you treated me i don't like how you were me first boom boom this that and the third and we are seeing it with one of the most respected members of the media one of the most respected sports journalists and he goes on national tv and has no issue saying this everybody has to know if you've got the slightest bit of integrity that that is trash man on all levels Yet he has no shame going on national television making this ridiculous claim. Talking about it matters to me. I take these votes seriously. Obviously, you don't. Obviously, you don't. So off the rip, off the rip, Peter King, God bless you. Happy 2019. But sit your ass down all the way down. But we're not stopping there. We are not stopping there because you know what? To to take away all blame, to recuse blame from Antonio Brown in this situation is absurd, and I'm not going to do that. Antonio Brown, you too, sit your ass down, man. I don't care what type of hairstyle you got. I don't care how many commercials you dance in the hippo mascot costume, whatever. Sit your ass down. What are you thinking? Now, I feel you. Ben Roethlisberger, people have been saying how he's one of the elite quarterbacks and this, that, and the third. Slim, you have been carrying Big Ben for several seasons now. I get it. And I can only imagine how annoying of a person Big Ro Ben Roethlisberger can be. So if you got fed up with him and you threw a football at him, Slim, I don't have a problem with that. Every single football player that I have had the pleasure of talking to or interviewing, they talk, I mean, you would act like a fight in practice or training camp or just in the locker room. It's just a daily occurrence. Guys scrap all the time, all the time. So I have no problem with you getting in an argument with Ben Roethlisberger or throwing a football. Yo, we grown. Ben Roethlisberger's big ass. If he get all in his feelings because someone threw a football at him, Man, stick slim. But you not playing because you got in an argument with Ben? 
you getting in your feelings because Juju Smith-Schuster was named team captain, and then you going on Mike Tomlin and then Ryan Clark. Slim, what you said to Ryan Clark, I got a problem when people air that type of stuff out in mixed company. Precisely because so many times, Bama's who say that don't even know how the word, where it stems from, how to use it. They're just all backwards with it. But we're not going to do that. You were super out of line for what you said about Ryan Clark. And you were super out of line for not playing because you felt a way? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And then do the dump, do the lame thing where you go to James Harrison and do this fake kind of Instagram tease interview, whatever the case may be. I don't even know if y'all had an interview, but you look lame all up and down this past week. Not as bad as Peter King, so that's why we started the show that way. But AB, you are culpable in this foolishness. So you too, grab a seat because your ass needs to man sit your ass down. Sit your ass down, bro. But we're not stopping there, man. I'm a man of the people. We got three sit your ass downs in one quarter. And last but not least, to all the people, all the people who got on Twitter, got on Sports Talk Radio, emailed your favorite shows and your favorite hosts, and, and screamed to the high heavens, yo, my favorite team needs to trade for Antonio Brown? Yes, you too can sit your ass down. Absolutely. Sit your ass down too. Bro, I've touched on this in the past, but I need to take my time to make sure everyone understands and I don't rush or cut any corners. If you listen to this show, you know that I take issue with a lot of talking points, a lot of the pillars in which the NFL is built upon. Many of the narratives which have been taken as gospel. I have waged a war with NFL cliches and just their way of thinking. And my number one thing is that quarterbacks, you do not need a quarterback to win. Quarterbacks have become like ridiculously overrated. There is a market inefficiency when it comes to the quarterback position. Look no further than Minnesota and all our favorite Michigan Spartan Kirk Cousins, right? They spend all this money after going 13-3 and and losing in the NFC Championship game only to go 8-7-1 and and fail to make the playoffs with the exact same roster intact. But... If you were to respond to me, man, you need a quarterback to win in this day and age. I would, I disagree. I vehemently disagree. But I understand your, your, your thinking, and I would pivot to my response with an understanding of where you're coming from, right? That makes sense, although I disagree. I can then arm myself with historical uh, references, right, and evidence to suggest you have been misled. Another talking point when it comes to the NFL that I cannot stand is that you should never draft a running back in the first round. Running backs are not worth first round picks. 
Again, I vehemently disagree. However, I understand that train of thought, right? Because more times than not, the rationale behind that argument is I can get similar, if not better value from this position later in the draft. Running backs are one of the positions where you could be drafted in the sixth round and you can still get first round talent, first round production. So you shouldn't draft a running back that high, right? Again, I disagree, but if that's your train of thought, if that's your rationale, I can understand it and then I can arm myself with historical references, right? And data to then counter. But if we are to take, you need a quarterback to win because you can't win a Super Bowl without an elite quarterback. Just the narrative. Whether you agree with that or not, that is the thought process. You need a quarterback in today's NFL to win. Boom. And another one is you shouldn't draft a running back in the first round because you can find similar talent later in the draft. Boom. Right? Whether you agree or not, that is the thinking. So if you subscribe to one, if not both of those arguments, please explain to me why you would do anything out of your way to bring in a wide receiver. Let alone a wide receiver like Antonio Brown, who has consistently shown you that he cares about himself more so than the team, so much so that he will not play in a win. It's not a win in your end scenario, but they had to win to make the postseason. And he was like, nah, I'm good. I don't care how many yards, how many touchdowns you score. How many yards you receive. I'm not training for anyone, any wide receiver who does that. And I'll tell you why. If you're one of the people who say, man, you can never draft a running back in the first round because you can find similar talent, if not better talent, later in the draft then why the hell would you ever draft a wide receiver in the first round? Ever. Ever. We just said, look, best receivers in this game, right? Or this season. DeAndre Hopkins, first round talent. Antonio Brown, second round talent. Julio Jones, first round talent. Michael Thomas, second round talent. Odell Beckham, first round talent. Stephon Diggs, I think he was drafted in the fifth round. Adam Thielen was undrafted. Tyreek Hill wasn't a first-round talent. And what are we talking about, bro? Go down the list. You can find excellent wide receivers. Excellent wide receivers outside the first round. In fact, it happens all the time. Cooper Cup. You know, I mean, just go down the list. I'm not making this up. Juju Smith-Schuster, where was he drafted? He's going to be the guy to to replace Antonio Brown if the Pittsburgh Steelers decide to move on from him. And we got to stop this, bro. We got to stop this right now. Because if you're going to say, if you're going to use the argument, man, you know what? can't draft a running back in the first round because you could get quality running backs later in the draft. Tell, number one, tell that to Dallas. Tell that to the Chargers. 
The New England Patriots, they drafted a running back this year in the first round. How worried were Chargers fans when Melvin Gordon went down with a knee injury versus the Ravens? He was a first-round talent. You know, how much better have the, the running game for the Saints been now that Mark Ingram is back in? He's a first-round talent. Go down the list. Go down the list. Okay? But whatever. I'm not even going to argue with that. If you believe you shouldn't draft a running back in the first round, please explain to me why it makes sense to draft a wide receiver in the first round or trade for one. And then for all of you who like, man, you need a, a, a quarterback to win. Again, I disagree. Hell, I don't think Nick Foles is that good. I don't think Eli Manning is that good. And I damn sure don't think Joe Flacco is that good. All of whom have won not only Super Bowls, but Super Bowl MVPs. But if you believe, and I'm not even going to take time to disagree with that, if you believe you need a quarterback to win in the Super Bowl, how on earth do you do the math in your head that would lend you to think that you need to trade for someone like Antonio Brown or a wide receiver in general? Hey guys, ask yourself this question. When was the last time a legit number one wide receiver threat won a Super Bowl? I mean a legit number one. Okay, I'm not talking about Antonio or Anquan Bolden when the Ravens did it. You know, because he was not what he was, was. He was way past his prime and at that point was just a possession receiver. I'm talking about a legit number one. When was the last time? Hell, Julio came close two years ago. And Julio probably was the best player on that field that, that game. He was making all types of amazing, spectacular catches. I mean, ridiculous catches. And that probably, to some degree, because he was so amazing, that probably led Matt Ryan and Kyle Shanahan to think, hey, we don't need to start running the ball. We're going to keep on throwing it to Julio. Right? Which ultimately led to their demise. All the all the Falcons, I said Hawks, all the Falcons had to do, just run the ball in the fourth quarter. Just run the ball. Wouldn't be enough time. But nah, they had Julio, which seduced them into throwing the ball, which ultimately led to them having the greatest collapse in Super Bowl history. But it's not just them. Before Julio, go back maybe 10, 11 years or so, in my opinion, the greatest Super Bowl of all time. Larry Fitzgerald literally carried the Cardinals in the second half of their Super Bowl against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Larry Fitzgerald was the best player on the field that night. Had maybe the greatest third quarter I've ever seen. I mean, just carried that team. And they still lost. <laughs> you know, wide receivers, the position is extremely overvalued, overrated. You don't need an elite wide receiver to win in the Super Bowl. Every team who has won one since God knows when has done it without an elite wideout. You can get a tight end, and they're cheaper. They're also probably a little bit more durable. Get one of them, and you can win. Get a running back who's a... who. It's like a wide out, a slash type of guy. You get a, a slot wide receiver, and they and they have, you know, helped to win. But an elite level number one, I don't know when the last time it happened.
Plaxico, maybe? Maybe. And that's not even taking into account Antonio Brown, the guy who has put himself over team time after time after time. So, Peter King, for taking this self-righteous stance, changing your pick for all pro because you don't like why, because you view that 6% more than the 94% of amazing play that Antonio Brown gave us this year, Peter King. Man, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Antonio Brown, you're not getting off the hook, brother, because you made a fool out of yourself again. You got so emotional. You got so much in your feelings because Juju Smith-Schuster got team captaincy and because you got in an argument with Ben Roethlisberger and apparently the coach and the organization sided with the QB, you felt so you felt so upset. You decided to just skip and sit out, practice and not play in a huge game. Antonio Brown, man, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. And anyone, any fan, any host, any analyst who feels that their team should go out of their way, should part with valuable assets to get a wide receiver? If you have ever, if you have ever said that a running back should never be drafted in the first round and that you need a quarterback to win, if you have said those things and still want your team, your team, to trade for any wide receiver, let alone Antonio Brown? Man, sit your ass down. Sit yo ass down too everybody take a seat while you're sitting down email me i got so much i want to hear because i know some of y'all probably disagree with that so please give me your best counter argument why am i wrong let me know email me at quarterly at gmail.com or tweet at me at quarterly show that's q u a r t e r l e e show I want to hear why, how, what is the defense that you guys can have for Antonio Brown? What is the defense for trading for a wide receiver, though, team after team, year after year, when they win without one? Let me know. Where am I wrong? What am I missing? Please enlighten me. So while you guys are still having a seat and typing as fast as you can, let's move on to our second topic this week. <coughs> Second quarter. It was important that we started off addressing Peter King. Not just because we're in the middle of the NFL playoffs. Not just because the Pittsburgh Steelers are one of the largest brands in American sports. No, 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 no. It was important that we addressed the Antonio Brown, specifically Peter King's reaction toward Antonio Brown first. Because it is the perfect segue into the second quarter this week, which is the NBA All-Star voting. For those of you who do not know, the first returns of NBA All-Star voting, they were released last week. I want to say last Thursday. And most of the returns are as you would expect. LeBron James, leading vote-getter in the Eastern Conference, or I'm sorry, the Western Conference. Giannis Antetokounmpo, leading vote-getter in the Eastern Conference. In the West, you've got LeBron, Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, four out of the five starters. In the East, we've got Giannis, 
Kawhi, Joel Embiid, Kyrie Irving, four out of the five out east. No one would object to those eight starters. No one. I suppose you probably could have a little issue with one here or there. Maybe you feel like Kyrie Irving. Actually, no. I can't even argue that. Absolutely, Kyrie Irving should be one of the four. Maybe you feel like Nikola Jokic should be a starter over Anthony Davis. Okay, I can understand that. But overall, overall, those eight positions the fans got correct. But there are two spots that the fans kind of came out of left field. I didn't even see this as a potential issue. When, when they were doing the All-Star returns, I didn't even think about this. Not in the slightest, but in the Western Conference, Derrick Rose, right now, if it were up to the fans, would be one of the two starting guards in the West. And in the East, Dwayne Wade would be one of the two starting guards out East. That is insane. It truly is. And I got to tell you, when I first saw the returns, I'm picking my daughter up from school, early dismissal on Thursday last week. So while my beautiful little girl's coming from her classroom to the office to go to leave school early, I look at my phone and I see, get the little notification, boom, Eastern Conference and Western Conference All-Star first returns have come out. And I see Dwayne Wade and Derrick Rose. And my immediate reaction, I think I even tweeted it, was these two guys are not deserving, and unfortunately, that's going to take all-star spots away or potentially take all-star spots away from deserving players. That was my immediate reaction. Now, it's important to point out when we talk about the all-star voting, we're not that far removed where fan voting was 100% of all-star starters, meaning... If the fans voted you, if you had the most votes, you were going to start relative to your position. It hasn't been, I want to say maybe three years ago, whenever the new CBA was signed, the NBA kind of did away with giving the fans total control over all-star starters. And they broke it down where the fan vote counts for 50% of all-star voting, where players represent 25%, and I believe coaches or media members, excuse me, represent the other 25%. I believe that's it. See, the media members are coaches, but I think coaches still do 100% of the reserves. So it's 50% fan, 25% players, and I believe 25% um, coaches or 25% media members. So when I made that first initial tweet, I was like, oh, man, Dwayne Wade getting in. That means somebody in the East, someone deserving, they're not going to make it. Oh, man, Derrick Rose got a lot of votes. If the fans keep voting like this, maybe Derrick Rose has a, you know, a strong kind of liking and following among players. I could theoretic theoretically see somebody getting bounced out of all-star contention because of that. And then I stopped myself. I had to, re I had to tweet something else. I'm like, you know what? Scratch my previous comment because that was a trash take. The all-star game is an exhibition. And if it's an exhibition... Let the fans vote for who they want to see. If the fans want, want to see Dwayne Wade, 
and almost like the last dance, kind of the last rock. Good. It's a showcase. The game is a showcase. The game is an exhibition. Allow the fans to see who they want. If the fans love this Derrick Rose comeback story, if Derrick Rose connects with the fan base to this degree, if Derrick Rose gets more fan votes than James Harden, if the fans want to see Derrick Rose more than they want to see the player who probably, who should be considered the front runner for MVP with the way he's been playing the last month and a half, then let the fans see Derrick Rose. I... I said my own take was trash because I had to think about it and I was like, you know what? No. Every year, the NBA players, when they are critiqued about why there's no defense in the All-Star game and why they do not tra- try hard or as hard as they, they should, quote unquote, or as hard as they would in other games, they all to a man say, you know what? We're putting on a show for the fans. This is for the fans. The fans want to see a show. We give them a show for three quarters, and in the fourth quarter, we turn things on. Is that not a definition of an exhibition? The players care for a quarter, maybe a quarter and a half. I mean, if you look at the first 10 minutes of an All-Star game, you're seeing alley-oops from half court. You're seeing defenders get out of the way. I still haven't seen the charge in in an All-Star game. I haven't seen a flagrant, you know, like this is part of the game. They put on a show. They ooh and off for fans. When I was a young man, I used to love All-Star, the All-Star game. To me, All-Star Saturday night is where it's at. But when I was a young a, a kid, a teenager, and a young man, it was all about the All-Star game. I love the All-Star game. So they're right. It is for the fans. It's a show for the fans. So don't get mad at the fans for voting. Don't get mad if you disagree with two of 10 spots. They got eight of them right. I got, you see so many people do this. And the thing that bothers me the most is that the people who complain about the fan votes are like the the TV personalities or the radio show hosts or the former players, like all the dumb fans, all the dumb fans. That's why it was important to start the show off with Peter King. I don't want to hear any, any big time media personality complain about the NBA fan vote when it comes to the All-Star game. If you haven't first took Peter King to the shed. Peter King is one of the most well-respected journalists out there, sports journalists out there. And he did something far worse, far worse than what the fans did in voting for Derrick Rose or for voting for Dwayne Wade. The fans are attached. It's an exhibition. And they have connected to Dwayne Wade and Derrick Rose. And they want to see them play. Because they don't know if they're going to be ever in a position to play in an all-star game again. I get that. That makes far more sense than saying Antonio Brown didn't play the last game of the season, so... That 6% matters to me. I'm taking him off. I'm not voting for him for anything. Get out of here. Get out of here. Don't talk about the fan votes if you haven't first ripped Peter King and people like him. That's number one. Number two, 
if the players have told us, if the players show us that this game is not important to them, that this game is just for the fans, that this game is a showcase, why would anyone get upset? The players have shown us this is an exhibition. The players have told us that this game is to put on a show for the fans. So if the fans want to see Derrick Rose, let the fans get what they want. Because everyone has the, the right, everyone has the ability. If you want James Harden to start, guess what? You have just as much opportunity. The same rules apply. If you want Victor Oladipo to start in the Eastern Conference over Dwayne Wade, guess what? Y'all got the same opportunity as the people who voted for Dwayne Wade. And third, and this is kind of the, the part that doesn't get nearly as much as attention as it should. The fans, I don't know what's going on with the Derrick Rose trade, right? James Harden, in my opinion, has been the MVP thus far. But James Harden doesn't play a necessarily a super exciting style of play. Now, he has amazing handles, and I think in an all-star game, seeing him shoot and all this other stuff dribble, it would be kind of fun. But most of his, I shouldn't say most, much of his game comes from drawing fouls, and that's just not going to be something that people want to see in an all-star game. So I understand why fans would be like, eh, you know, eh, I don't really want to see him start. But over in the East, think about this. It is a very real possibility. And in fact, I'd probably go as far as say probability that there will only be six teams in the Eastern Conference with a winning record at the time All-Star starters are officially announced. There only will be six teams with a winning record. One of those six teams will be the Miami Heat. Everybody bitches and moans about the, the fan voting. But we also know when it comes to coaches, what do they like to do? Reward winning. Coaches love to do that when it comes to their reserve ballots, right? They could be a player who has amazing statistics, eye-opening uh, highlight plays, but his team could be 13, 14 games under 500, and they probably don't get denied over a team who is in playoff contention. We're not that long, far removed from Jeff Teague, Kyle Korver, and Damari Carroll, I believe, being all-stars. Because the Atlanta Hawks won 60 wins, and the East that year was trash. So they rewarded those players because they won while the rest of the conference lost. That happened. Maybe Damari Carroll wasn't an all-star, but Kyle Korver and Jeff Teague definitely were. So we know that's what coaches do. That's how they get down. So remember, there are only six teams in the Eastern Conference who will, who will likely have a winning record at the time all-star starters are announced. If Dwayne Wade isn't going to be the guy to get an all-star spot, who else on that roster would you be willing to bet gets a spot? 
Justice Winslow has played phenomenally well since returning to the lineup, but he missed so much of the first part of the season. I can't imagine him being um, or him garnering enough all-star, you know, support. Hassan Whiteside has played well, but he's a walking laughingstock. He's like the butt of jokes. So I can't imagine that they give him an all-star spot. Josh Richardson won't do it. Rodney Magruder won't do it. So if you're not going to give an all-star spot to Dwayne Wade, who would you be willing to reward from the Miami Heat roster? The Miami Heat, the team that is one of six teams in the entire conference to have a winning record. So is it possible that the fans have basically done the coaches a, a solid? The coaches will be like, okay, well, we don't have to do the whole which player from a winning team do we have to give an all-star spot to. The fans have already gave their love and their respect and that all-star spot to Dwayne Wade and living legend, one of the greatest players of all time in his final year. Two birds with one stone. And in fact, the precedent has already been set. I'm 36, so I remember this. But I remember Michael Jordan's last season, and it was this big, big ordeal about Vince Carter who got the all-star votes from the fans and Michael Jordan. And everybody wanted Michael Jordan to start except for the fans who did not vote for Michael Jordan as a starter. So the members of the media, the people who turn their nose up to fans, right, and saying, oh, my God, how could the fans vote for Dwayne Wade and Derrick Rose? Guess what they did? They applied so much pressure on Vince Carter and Isaiah Thomas, who also was trying to apply pressure on Vince Carter to give up his starting spot and give it to Michael Jordan. Although the Wizards were one of the worst teams in the league, Michael Jordan ended up becoming an all-star starter because Vince Carter was like, you know what, I'm going to give up my spot. Because for a whole, for like two weeks, the media just went in on Vince. And all All-Star Week and All-Star Weekend, Isaiah Thomas went in on Vince, who was coaching the Eastern Conference All-Stars, which is crazy when you think about it. So the precedent has already been set, the farewell tour, right? Michael Jordan got the start in the, his last All-Star game because the members of the media, the, the high and mighty, right? The self-righteous media, they wanted Michael Jordan to start. So the precedent has already been set. In fact, even more so because the Wizards weren't winning in Michael Jordan's last year, Miami is one of only six teams who will have a winning record probably by the time the All-Star starters are announced. So is it really that absurd? Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? The members of the media don't want Antonio Brown to be an all-pro because he missed the game. Yet they will go out of their way to bash fans for voting for Dwayne Wade and voting for Derrick Rose. That doesn't make any sense. Coaches will bash fans because, oh my gosh, how could you vote for Dwayne Wade and Derrick Rose? The fans don't know what they're doing. Yet they will always reward teams who win 
over players who are better or players who are more exciting. Case in point, that Atlanta Hawks team that I just mentioned. Hell, man, Chris Kamen was an all-star. Chris Kamen. Sharif Abdur-Rahim. All-star. Stop it. Stop it. All right, guys, you heard the horn. That means we are at halftime. At halftime this week, I'm going to do something a little bit special. Old age is starting to hit me, man. Like I said, I'm 36. I've been 36 for a few weeks now. And there was once a time where Thursday nights, I could stay up all night into the early mornings because Thursday nights are when TNT usually has their doubleheader. And that doubleheader consists of two NBA games, one being a late West Coast game, followed by the best show, my favorite show on television inside the NBA. I used to be able, not that long ago, I used to be able to watch both games and watch inside the NBA well into the early morning and not even think, not even blink an eye. I used to do that every single week throughout the NBA season, but I cannot do it anymore. And this past Thursday, I missed the beauty. It was Houston at Golden State and James Harden put on a show. I think the game went to overtime. James Harden hit the game winner over Draymond Green. And the following morning, I wake up and all these texts that I get, did you see James Harden, James Harden this, James Harden that. And I feel like an asshole because I missed a great game and I missed inside the NBA. But I also missed the one and only Bill Walton. Because on that same night, Bill Walton and Dave Pash do what they usually do, call a Pac-12 game late into the night. And man, did I miss one of the best lines from the all-time greatest color commentator in sports history. Who do you think can succeed here? What type of characteristics should UCLA look for in the next coach? Barack Obama. Well, he's, I don't think he's going to coach. So well, what, you keep saying that, but why? Why are you so negative? Why do you just turn down? Give me some His names. brother-in-law some coach. Craig Robinson. I'm sticking with Barack Obama until he says no. That's right. Change that Bill Walton can believe in is former President Barack Obama. I don't even know what I would have done had I saw that live. I would have laughed so hard that tears would have streamed down my face because I laugh very hard while I hear it now. So, of course, of course, like eating black eyed peas on New Year's Day, we can't go the first month of, of the new year without the best halftime segment that we have on this show. Where the apple of my eye, my little princess, she recites some of the best quotes from the man, the myth, the legend himself, Bill Walton. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a segment that I like to call Bill Walton's Words of Wisdom. It's time now for Bill Walton's Words of Wisdom. Why is Scottie Pippen taking a charge? Taking a charge is for people with no game. Yikes! <laughs> when you intercept the ball with your stomach, that is great defense. Throw it down! The offensive presence of great Oster tag is quite overwhelming sometimes. And that was... Bill Walton's words of wisdom. <laughs> 
All right, guys. Half time is out of the way. We have two quarters left to finish the show off. So without further ado, we're going to get the second half started with my guest this week, Troy Halliburton. He is a writer for the Washington City Paper as well as a contributor to truthaboutit.net. Friend of the program, making his first appearance of 2019, Troy Halliburton. Troy, what's going on, bro? Armand, what's going on, my guy, man? I'm glad to be back, man. I'll talk about a variety of topics with you today. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Before we get to those topics, make sure you guys follow my guy, Troy, on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton. That's H-A-L-I-B-U-R. And, you know, this conversation stemmed from uh, Twitter back and forth you and I had uh, about last week, and this is in regards to the first rounds of all-star fan voting. Uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier in the show in the, in the second quarter. So I'm going to, you know, give the floor to you to tell me and the world why you are, I shouldn't say against, but why you have a problem with fan voting for the All-Star game? Yeah, well, I think that, like, uh, our, our good friend Mike Sykes uh, brought it up, the fact that, you know, the All-Star, uh, the, the All-Star selections is, uh, you know, it, it counts towards, you know, people trying to get bigger contracts uh, as far as you getting the Supermax contract or, you know, a lot of stipulations and people's contracts. So as far as, you know, when people, when, when, when you're talking about controlling you know, how much money somebody can make, you know, I think that all-star, you know, game or selection should be taken a lot more serious than what we do. And I feel like a lot of times fans get on there and they kind of just vote for people. Like, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, you know, Zaza Pachulia was damn near an all-star father. And, you know, anybody with, you know, two, two good eyes can see that, you know, Zaza's not an all-star basketball player. So when you have, you know, some of these players coming out who are going to be eligible for some of these, you know, large contract extensions, you know, I think that, you know, the people who are, you know, eligible should, you know, actually be deserving of being in that spot and not just receiving votes because, you know, fans, you know, like, like you know, exciting dunks or fans like them because they're from a certain place. And I'm glad you said that because that's perfect because – Although maybe with the small details, we may have uh, a difference of opinion. Overall, we agree. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's insane that players, that their earning potential is left in the hands to anyone, really, outside of the contract, the people who offer up contracts, whether it be front offices or owners, like fans, members of the media, no one should be able to affect a player's earning potential. And and to that point, you're absolutely right. The All-Star game and its voting should be taken more seriously. Right. No, I, I completely understand uh, your perspective uh, when it comes to that. I mean, like, I, I saw you tweeted yesterday about, you know, how, you know, even some media members can have, uh, you know, personal biases that will slant, uh, you know, who is deserving and who is not deserving of, you know, being an all-star or all-NBA. Or, or, and I think the case that you gave, the example you gave was uh, a Pro Bowl where you had, um, I think it was a, Peter King was like, I'm not voting for, I wish I couldn't vote for Antonio Brown because of, 
you know, how he, uh, you know, acted inside the center. So, bro, it's like, man, dude, it's a little bro, that's like dude, uh, football, so, like, he <laughs> can do whatever, he can say whatever or do whatever inside the locker room, but for you to deny that, man, that, you know, that's actually, you know, kind of criminal. <laughs> Once again, guys, I'm joined by friend of the program, Troy Halliburton, writer for the Washington City Paper and contributor to truthaboutit.net, among other platforms and websites make sure you guys follow him on twitter to keep up to date with all his amazing pieces at troy Halliburton. and one of your most recent articles you did for the city paper was something that i was a huge fan of it was talking about the washington wizards specifically and how they've implemented their analytics department there are a lot of different topics that i want to discuss a little bit later but just about this article uh, fill me and everyone else in on, you know, kind of what led you to to start the thought process of this piece and then ultimately put pen to pad and uh, publish this piece that I thought was really well done. Well, um, I think that the, the thought process of how I got to writing the piece was really um, just, just kind of building relationships with different people within the organization, within the analytics department over there. Uh, one of the guys I highlighted was uh, Brett Greenberg, who is the head of analytics for the Wizards. And, you know, I just began to have a lot of conversations with him, you know, regarding, you know, what, what, what kind of different things the team was doing and how they're making progress. And uh, one of the things that uh, I was not able to get into in the article was the fact that, well, Brett uh, talked about that the Wizards were being progressive as far as, you know, learning and embracing analytics. But... The shots and stuff haven't been falling, and one of the things that you know uh, he and others in the organization have feared is that is that because the shots haven't been falling, that the team would kind of divert back to the old ways and not you know you know forge ahead with the past, knowing that that was the right idea. So you know, I, I thought to myself, well, let me let, let me go ahead and, and try to do as much research as I can on what you know the team has done to improve in that department. And, you know, do my job as a writer to inform the public and let them know that, you know, just because the shots aren't falling right now doesn't mean that the team isn't playing smarter and that eventually they'll be better off for it. Yeah, man, this is really fascinating to hear, you know, um, because I get it. For if you're a player and you've reached the pinnacle, you know, you're playing basketball, a lifelong dream, I'm imagining, and you're playing it at the highest level in the entire world, and you've gotten there by using your feel. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a discussion that you see play out all the time in baseball whether, when it comes to managers. But specifically in basketball, I understand why players are more about, you know, this is how I've gotten here. This is what I need to do. This is the best way I can play. And looking at someone who ultimately probably have, has never played high competitive in basketball and then telling you how you should shoot, I can see how – players would take it or feel a type of way about it. Um, but in your, I guess, research and just kind of interaction with players, does that come across more that players do seemingly kind of push aside the uh, advanced statistics or, or, or do you find them buying into uh, the information that teams are trying to provide for them? Uh, I don't think it is difficult. I mean, from from what I can gather and the conversations I've had with players, not only with the Wizards but with different teams, and they don't really believe in the analytics movement. But I think that a lot of that has to do with the stigma that comes with 
you know, nerds and stats and, you know, stuff like that. And, and it's just like, I think that some of the best players, um, you know, they, 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 they just view analytics for what it really is. And, and, and it's just information. And at the end of the day, you want to have as much information as possible so that you can make, you know, sound decisions. It's not like where people are telling a player to, you know, use analytics as a crutch and, you know, you can only do this with a certain thing. You can only take this specific shot. It's just like, you know, it, it, this is, it, these are just giving you trends and information that can, you can use to help improve your game. And I think that once players start to kind of realize that, then I think the mindset will kind of shift and that they will be more, you know, understanding and accepting of the analytic movement. But, but as far as right now, I mean, to a man, every player's like, nah, man, I don't, I don't really like analytics. Like, right. I'm Bradley Bill, so I'm not an analytics guy. Y'all talking to the wrong dude. Several reason, you know, I went, I went into the article, I went to a reason, I was like, okay, he went, he, he's been in Houston the last four years. You know, they're the best team as far as analytics goes in the, uh, in, in, in the NBA. And I was like, oh, he's going to give me some good stuff here. And he was like, nah, man, I'm not asking that stuff at all. Like, I actually don't like it. He's like, man, I use it sometimes as a scouting tool to, you know, help, you know, if I'm guarding a player, I know, oh, I can help off of this guy or different things like that. But he said he, he doesn't, he doesn't do too much into the analytics movement, which kind of surprised me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that is actually very surprising. Especially considering the culture that Houston has and you know how well Trevor Ariza played down there. Once again, guys, I'm joined by friend of the program, Troy Halliburton. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton, writer for the Washington City paper. And we're talking about his most recent piece, and it was exceptionally done talking about uh the analytics department specifically with the Washington Wizards. But Anytime I talk about analytics, and especially that you wrote this piece, it, it brings to me a larger issue. Um, I don't know if everyone remembers this, but probably like around a handful of years ago, Michael Wilbon had this um, this piece where he outlined how you know African Americans do not use analytics. And man, I gotta tell you, that joint blew me. You know, I'm 36 years old, and probably for the last. 15 years I have used uh, analytics to help better understand like at the point I'm at now it is a huge tool it's the first tool I go to in terms of assessing how good or how how poor a player is or isn't um, and the funny thing is I my one of my close friends from um, you know childhood is the person who really first put me on to it gave me the book stumbling uh, stumbling on wins, my shout out to my guy Holcomb, also another African American. So, you know, the idea that African Americans don't use analytics was just something that just really bothered me. And it then, once I dug deeper and over the years of being a producer, I've, you know, developed relationships, close relationships with people um, in league organizations and I have three close friends and three separate uh, teams who are you know trying to get their way up climb the ladder up to a you know a front office you know general manager vice president position and they were saying how that hurt them because not only do they have to fight the the, the perception that you know black people don't use analytics from within their organizations from the powers that be the people who do the promotions but now they have to fight that same battle 
with some of the most prominent voices who talk about the sport, right? We just talked about how players oftentimes um, are dismissive of the advanced statistics. So when they get jobs in the media, they have these large voices where they dismiss analytics and how, you know, it's not important. And now you have members of the media who did not play also turning their nose up. So if you are a, a minority in an organization trying to get a GM spot, trying to climb up the ladder, you're fighting a war on two ends about people making these incorrect assessments about what black people do and how we view advanced statistics. So having you write this piece, knowing you're an African-American, I'm not saying this to stun you because I just want people to know how proud I was that people can see, yo, we also use analytics. If you don't mind, can you talk about that dynamic and how important it is to kind of open people's eyes to that? So I, I just like you, remember that piece uh, from Wilbon from a couple of years ago. And, you know, it kind of it, it kind of me off as well because I feel like, you know, as people who are trying to be progressive and trying to understand and learn more about the game, you know, it's, I don't think it is right to, like, kind of generalize everybody in the field and say, well, black people don't like analytics when that necessarily isn't the case. I feel like... You know, like, like, like I touched on earlier, like, analytics is really just just information. And you can use that information however you want. And, and, and it, it is not the end all to be all for any sports argument or for any sports discussion. But to, to you know, I feel like to, like, blatantly disregard uh, the analytics community, you know, it's it's uh, it's like the same uh, anti-intellectualism that right. Rubon complained about when he said that Steph Curry and Kyrie are denying the world they're around or that we landed on the moon. It's like you, you can't you can't deny if you really want to look in the face of science and just deny that these things exist or that these things are actually helpful, then you're actually you know kind of doing more harm to the discussion around sports than you are. Helping the discussion around sports. Yeah, man, that joint was super dangerous. You know what I'm saying, and and reckless, really. And look, by no means are we taking shots at Will Bond or any of those guys who are on that round table. You know, these guys are trailblazers, and and without them, you know, you and I and other people won't be wouldn't be in the position where we're trying to get on. So we definitely tip a cap and salute to those guys, but. You just got to understand, you know, your your platform, because when they say stuff like that and when you look at all these outlets and other, you know, platforms and, you know, media uh, publications, their analytics guy, you know, take Tom Habershow, for example, no shots to him. I'm just saying that because he's the NBC Sports Washington guy. They look a certain way and they don't look like the players. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, you see the ripple effect when you're just around the way talking to people, it then props up this kind of jock versus, you know, informed or data intelligent guy, you know what I'm saying? A nerd, if you will. And then, you know, we all are worse for the wear because there's valuable information that is being dismissed because people with this, this huge voice and with this large platform are speaking to these incorrect, you know, notions that, you know, minorities don't respect or use Analytics and it's just it's just nasty all the way around. 
Hey, man, I, I appreciate that, man. And a, a goal of mine was to, you know, uh, uh, give people, you know, uh, a behind-the-curtain scene of, you know, what the LA's department does, like how they are actually trying to help the team, and to also try to, you know, um, you know, uh, separate the disconnect between, you know, people who, you know, don't view analytics as, you know, a, a rifle tool to evaluate players, and, you know, the, the, the smarter people, not smarter people, but the people who get paid a lot of money to, you know, give this related information in order to help the teams, you know, play better. Like, you know, smart people like Daryl Morey from the Houston Rockets, who, you know, is leading the way as far as uh, sports analytics and basketball analytics specifically. And, you know, that they, his team has, has, you know, taken the whole three-point uh, barrage to new heights. You know, they, they keep breaking the record every year for most three-point attempts, and there's no coincidence that they're also winning a lot more games. So for me to be able to highlight that correlation, you know, I feel like I was, I'm trying to, you know, do a service to the community and allow them to see that, you know, this stuff is hopeful. You know, I had a piece that I wrote a couple of weeks ago where I tried to touch on this a little bit when I talked about Kelly Oubre and how, you know, the disconnect between fans uh, who love Oubre because he's a stylish player and, you know, he's a flashy dunker and, you know, you know quite honestly, you know, he's a model playing basketball. Right. Uh, in reality, when you look at his advanced analytics, when you look at his numbers, you know, he isn't nearly as helpful as people would like him to think. And, you know, for the people to say, oh, you know, he has a lot of potential and he can do this. But when you look, the numbers do not lie. Like, what the numbers showed over his three and a half years as a wizard, that he was, you know, as consistently inconsistent as right. he could possibly be in the NBA. And for, 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 the, for the fans to you know, be upset that they traded him away, it, it, it shows that, that, that there's a serious disconnect there when, you know, the front office, they've already evaluated Ubre and decided for whatever reason, not because they couldn't pay him next summer, well, because he, he just wasn't a, as good of a fit playing next to Bill and Wall as a lot of people would assume. Once again, guys, I'm joined by friend of the program, Troy Halliburton, writer for the Washington City Paper, contributor to truthaboutit.net and frequent visitor to the Quarterly Report podcast. And, Troy, each time you come on the show, you know, we like to talk about things outside the sports world. One of the best, one of the reasons why our interviews are, you know, some of the, among the favorites of the listeners. And this past week, there was nothing bigger than, you know, the surviving R. Kelly documentary on Lifetime. Um, man, that it took a toll out on me. It was six hour-long episodes, and, you know, it, it was it was. A, it was very well done, but it was a tough watch. And, you know, through it all, my biggest takeaway was, man, we there's been such uh, just a failure on these young ladies on behalf of just so many different people, man. It was a failure to protect them from the police. It was a failure to protect them, protect them from, you know, the media, members of the music industry, you know, just down the line it was a failure on so many people's parts to to continue to let r kelly kind of become this this monster um that was my biggest takeaway from the six-part documentary i'm curious what was your biggest takeaway now that you know all of this information has been brought to light and laid on the table 
Um, I, the biggest takeaway that I had from that documentary is that uh, you know people are really willing to pay the price of fame, and that means that means uh, you know people who are you know trying to become famous, who you know seek out R. Kelly and, and they want they want to get him to help him make a turn their career around, or even the people who are in his inner circle who are kind of hypnotized by fame and that and, and will turn a blind eye to different things that they will see uh, and that they know in their hearts to be wrong, but because the Archell is famous and because they are benefiting from this fame, then, then, then you know, they, they, they won't, you know, uh, do what is probably the right thing to do. I think that we live in a society now where, you know, people people chase fame and people want to get to fame so quick that, you know, we kind of lose sight of, I don't know, our own moral code just in order to be famous or be around somebody who's famous. Right. And I think that it, it, it's kind of, it's really just sickening. Like, like Pete R. Kelly, like, I mean, and even beyond the whole fame aspect of it, I think that morally, the biggest takeaway that I had was the fact that there are still people to this day right. on Twitter defending this man. And, I mean, that right there just bothered me more than anything else. That I, 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 I actually don't even have an explanation as to why there are people on Twitter defending him, attacking uh, women who were in the documentary, still calling them liars, or attacking, uh, you know, people who were a part of making the documentary, like uh, Jamila Lemieux from Chicago, who's, right. uh, you know, a famous uh, black Twitter personality. You know, instead of people getting on there and trashing R. Kelly, people on there attacking Jamila like she had anything to do with, you know, uh, these people telling their stories. She, she, she's, a, she's a journalist. She's a storyteller. Like, she has nothing to do with, you know, uh, uh, trying to convict R. Kelly or, you know, or, 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 or trying to purposefully, you know, take this man, or she is trying to take him down. But it's just like, you, 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 people are spending their energy worrying about the wrong things and the wrong people when the only, the one monster here is Robert Kelly. And we need to be focusing our energy on that. And I was just taken aback and surprised by, I mean, how much people are willing to, you know, apologize and mansplain his behavior. Yeah, Slim, the whole thing is gross. The whole thing is nasty. The whole thing is wild. And what's crazy, you know, you saw the reports where his streaming numbers have gone up, like, some ridiculous amount. That's crazy, man. Crazy. Yeah, I'm just thinking to myself, like, yo, what's wrong with us as a society? Where as we are getting this information, you have people defending him, people defending him who, are, who know nothing about him except for all of these proven facts, all of this documented evidence that has been put in front of all of us. So that's A. And then B, people rush to listen to this music after hearing this. This whole thing is gross. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the fact that his, yeah, his streaming went up shows you that, I mean, this is crazy. I, I, when, when women get on Twitter and they say that men are trash, and it's just like, man, I, I always put some type of ways. I'm like, man, dad, he ain't generalized like that. Every man that trash. But, man, when you see stuff like that, like, you get it. You get it. It, 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 
since that, I mean, we live in a misogynistic society, and it's actually really sad because, you know, I think that a lot of times people get into this thing, oh, they talk about, you know, the uh, young girls who, you know, were chasing after R. Kelly and doing these things. It's like, man, we gotta, you got to talk to our young boys and explain to them that this behavior is not okay. It's not about just talking to our young girls and, and trying to protect them. We gotta we we gotta talk to our young our young boys who are the ones that are out here hurting them. Yeah. So it becomes like a deeper uh, issue than you know just R. Kelly and his music streams. You know, it, it's more of a uh, you know a, a societal thing and a, a really a generational thing where we have to make sure that this next generation of kids. And, and, and young people, they understand, you know, the difference between, you know, they, they understand boundaries, and they understand, uh, you know, that, that, that this type of behavior is simply unacceptable. As always, that's Troy Halliburton with an amazing interview. Make sure you guys follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton, writer for the Washington City Paper, contributor to truthaboutit.net. Troy, as always, thanks for coming on and uh, chopping it up with me. And i uh, talk to you a little bit later in 2019, bro. Um, I appreciate you for having me on. Uh, and uh, I'm happy New Year to you. And much continued success to, uh, to your partner. I see you getting, uh, every, every time I look up, you get a new dress. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm kind of jealous, man. You got to get down the Hey, Slim. Shoot, I'm, I'm trying to eat, man. I'm trying to get like you, bro. <laughs> hey, that's the official black man for me right there. I'm trying to get like you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, guys. Three quarters are in the book. So we are going to finish up strong as I talk about one of my favorite sports, the sweet science and one of boxing's biggest names. All that and more in our fourth topic this week. Fourth quarter. So I'm listening to the Joe Budden podcast a few weeks back. As many of you all know, it's my favorite podcast, you know, besides yours truly. And they, of course, start talking about this ridiculous fight that happened, I believe, in Japan between Floyd Mayweather and um, I don't know the, the fighter's name. I believe he's like he's like a 20-year-old mixed martial artist. Um, but for whatever reason, they decided to box. And Floyd, as one would expect, beat this kid down pretty badly, knocked him out or knocked him down three times in the first round. Ref stopped the fight. Floyd came into the fight out of shape. Um, you know, if you've ever seen a Floyd fight, say what you will about him as the person or the um, the opportunistic fighter. But Floyd doesn't cheat the sport. He's always in tip-top physical condition. His training methods are things of legend. But he, it was like the great white hype. You know, he came into the fight completely out of shape you've never seen floyd that uh that size that shape if you will um but it didn't matter because he got this dude out of here in one round and i'm listening to the podcast and they're like yo what is floyd doing floyd must be in real financial uh a dire situation for him to take this fight he only made 30 million what could he possibly be doing inside of like he's hurting for money now, I definitely think Floyd Mayweather, despite all the money he made, all the money he probably still makes, he's probably not living comfortably because of the lavish lifestyle that he keeps. 
you know, between his security, his cars, his jewelry, his house, and his gambling habit, among other things, among running a business, having his own, you know, stable of fighters, everything costs money. Everything costs money. And Floyd Mayweather, I don't know him, so forgive me for being a bit uh, presumptive. But he doesn't strike me as as an, as an individual who's frugal. He doesn't strike me as someone who has definitely gone through the necessary um, gone through the necessary steps to make sure that their money starts working for them. He's still a young man. But I don't think that's the main reason. While I think Floyd probably needs some money, I don't think he's at the point where he's hurting for money right now. So I don't think that's the sole or the main reason why he fought this young man in Japan. Nope. I think Floyd needed something to kind of get him ready because Floyd's going to fight again in 2019. Absolutely is going to fight again in 2019. And I suspect it's not really even going out on a limb. In a few weeks, Manny Pacquiao is going to fight Adrian Broner. Two men who have long since been tied to Floyd Mayweather. Manny Pacquiao, for what felt like a decade, was, I don't even want to call him a manufactured rival, because to say that is to diminish Pacquiao's greatness. And Manny Pacquiao was an amazing, great fighter for a for the early, the early part of the 2000s, man. He had a run. He was an amazing fighter. Now, we can call into question doping, juicing, however you want to call it. But he was a legendary Hall of Fame fighter. And that their, I don't want to say peaks, but part of their peaks ran parallel to one another around the same weight class. And that it took them over a decade to finally get in the ring when they both were past their prime. In a fight that, again, I still have not seen that fight till this day, have no desire to see the fight. But by all accounts, was underwhelming. And has left a bad taste in so many people's mouths. More important, left a bad taste in the mouths of sports fans who are not necessarily boxing fans. So that the narrative became Floyd doesn't fight anybody. And Floyd only fights people when they're old. Which isn't necessarily true. Floyd is an A-side fighter, and as all A-side fighters, they pick when they want to fight. But not also, only that, Floyd moved up to welterweight or around the 140s and 147 weight class when that glamour class, all those fighters that you knew and loved in the late 90s, they were tail, to the tail end of their career. So if you look at Floyd's early fights, Floyd fought everybody. In fact, outside of Paul Williams, Floyd fight, fought everyone. Everyone. There's no one that he didn't fight. You could make the case that he should have fought fighters earlier, and you'd be right. But he fought Juan Manuel Marquez. Marquez was the one that watched. That was when he should have fought him. He fought Miguel Cotto. I wish he would have fought him three years earlier. But Miguel Cotto 
after losing to Floyd, was still a top five, top ten fighter, pound for pound. It wasn't like he fought a washed Miguel Cotto. But I'm, I'm getting off my point. Floyd Mayweather is getting back into the ring in 2019, and he's going to fight the winner of Manny Pacquiao, Adrian Broner. I just went through the past and talked about his connection with Manny Pacquiao. We can't forget about his connection with Adrian Broner. Two brash, loudmouth, annoying fighters. Adrian Broner, for the first part of his career, was billed as being the next Floyd Mayweather. God-given talent. Loud, brash, but charismatic. Knew how to play the media and position himself as a villain. In a, in a sport where so many guys try their hardest to kind of separate themselves, not with their physical tools in the squared circle, but to break through and separate themselves in garnering attention and media interest. Who's done it better than Adrian Broner post Floyd Mayweather? Who? He's an American fighter who draws one of the only ones who do. And he's not really that exciting of a fighter. That's the one thing that I've never understood when it came to Floyd. Floyd is not an entertaining fighter, yet he gets everyone's interest. And similar, Adrian Broner is the same way. Adrian Broner, if you've ever seen one Adrian Broner fight, you've seen them all. He doesn't let his hands go. Some of that is because he's not in the best condition, so I do think he tires. And some of that is just that I just don't think I just don't think he's a student of the game. I think he values himself much more than his actual uh, talents would lend credence to. And there was a, a, a bromance, if you will. He was the, the heir apparent. He was the one who was going to take the, the baton when Floyd decided to let it go. And then, in a complete 180, they started beefing. And beefing really, really crossing some serious lines so you don't know where either stand apparently they have men some fences but who knows but i'm telling you guys this because when you look at the fight that floyd had with the young man in japan at the beginning of the year and you see and you hear all the reports and you hear the quote-unquote experts so you listen to the podcasts and you're like, man, what's Floyd doing? Floyd is getting himself ready. I know it. You know it. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Cinco de Mayo weekend. He's going to fight the winner of this fight coming up in two weeks. Adrian Broner, Manny Pacquiao. Get ready. You know, I'm not going to cover that fight. I may pat myself on the back and say I told you so. But I have no interest in seeing Floyd fight anymore. Like I said, I didn't see the Pacquiao fight. I didn't see the uh, Andre Berto fight. I didn't see the Conor McGregor circus. I just don't have any interest in seeing Floyd do stuff to, to diminish the sport that I love. I love boxing. And unless Floyd is going to step in the ring with Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford, Sean Porter, Keith Thurman, Canelo Alvarez, somebody, then what are you doing? 
I didn't want to see you fight Manny Pacquiao. And make no mistake, Manny Pacquiao is going to crush. He's going to crush Adrian Broner. They're not fighting in America, I don't believe. I think it's a pay-per-view fight. They're charging $75 for it. You're a fool if you buy that fight, number one. Number two, I don't know what the hell is going on with people. And these promoters with these crazy, insane prices for pay-per-view. Shout out to Eddie Hearn, man. It's like they are helping promote DAZN because these prices are ridiculous. But that's neither here nor there. Manny Pacquiao is going to destroy Adrian Broner. And then guess what? We are going to build the quote-unquote super fight, the, the rematch of the super fight. And you're going to get the whole pompous circumstance all over again. And it's going to be annoying. It's going to be annoying. Be forewarned. I'm getting all of this out of my way now because I'm not going to touch Floyd Mayweather, Adrian Broner, Manny Pacquiao again. This is the last time. But I wanted you all to know the hustle is in the play. This is exactly what's going on. This is what's in the works. Do not be surprised when you start to hear the rumblings. Do, I wouldn't even be surprised if Floyd Mayweather runs to the ring after Manny Pacquiao knocks out Adrian Broner. I wouldn't even be surprised if that happens. But make no mistake, Floyd's not just fighting this guy just because. There's a bunch of people that Floyd could fight for $30 million. There's a reason why he took that fight. There's a reason why he took that fight at that date. All of these things are, are, they happen for a reason. Say what you will about Floyd Mayweather Jr. I'm not going to defend him. I think he's a despicable person, but he's not a fool. Not when it comes to his business savvy. It, it's, it's, it's really bothersome, man, because that fight is going to take away from the fights that we should be seeing. And damn it, man, boxing just annoys me. You know, we're a few weeks a few weeks away from Errol Spence, Mikey Garcia. That shouldn't be happening. It just came out the other day that Terrence Crawford is going to fight Amir Khan. That shouldn't be happening. I believe uh, Anthony Joshua, he's got Wembley Stadium, but he's not going to fight Deontay Wilder or Tyson Fury. Another mistake. It's like everything that should happen with the sport. It's so easy. Just put it together. But all these little dumb things get in the way. And what are we left with? Floyd Mayweather Jr. fighting some dude in Japan. <laughs> God help us all. All right, guys. That is the show for this week. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Troy Halliburton. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton, writer for Washington City Paper and truthaboutit.net really dope follow really dope guy i hope you guys enjoyed that interview i hope you enjoyed the show before we go make sure you head on over to itunes apple podcast and leave me a five star review five stars also tell me tell your friends tell the world why you love the quarterly report podcast and why we are the best sports podcast out i truly feel it i truly believe in that and i want to thank all of you all for listening to me this week we will be back here next thursday once again with another amazing show of the quarterly report <laughs>